Right. So we're going to record the sermon as we do every week. And the sermon is available online at james122.org. James122.org. It's also um, it's also available on various audio platforms so that you can listen to the word through throughout the week. And I would just advocate that. Also, our, our podcast, uh, In the Word podcast with Will and Marie. And I actually have posted one that I'm going to be talking about maybe a little bit in the message on how to study the word of God. Studying the word of God is important. And I think we talk a lot about the fact that we should study the word of God. We don't always give a lot of instruction on how to really be a good Bible student. So check that out. I think there are some things that we could use that would give us some tips and tricks on just getting better at studying God's word and how to retain more of God's word in our in our daily life. Uh, be, before I jump into Revelation, let me just say one quick thing about prayer. We've been studying prayer on Wednesday nights and if, if you weren't able to join us, we understand. Sorry that you missed some really great lessons brought to us by our teacher, uh, Brother Beecham. And we, we've been learning about how to pray. We even talked about how to pray in our lesson in Core 52 last week and about the importance of prayer and what prayer does. Let me just share one thing with you before I jump into the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter three. You can turn there in Revelation three because that's where we're going. But let me just say this about prayer, sort of a footnote to our series because starting this Wednesday and Brother Beecham will announce this later, uh, perhaps that we're going to start at, uh, the epistle of First John. We're going to talk about First John and Brother Beecham will be teaching on on First John. But I just want to say this about prayer. When we pray, we should always pray believing, pray trusting, pray with the expectation that God has our best interests at heart and that he is not like an earthly father or mother, but he is our heavenly father and he knows all things. According to Matthew 6, he knows what we have need of even before we ask. I just wanted to just encourage you to pray believing that God is able. We don't always know what God will do, but I think we can feel confident of what God can do and that he can do all things but fail. That God can do what's impossible for man is possible for God. And that God's man's extremities are, are God's opportunities. He's not restricted by anything. But, but you know, there's this, there's this parable. I'll call it a parable. It doesn't specifically say it's a parable. But I, I, believe, uh, I believe it is in, in Matthew chapter 20. There, there's this passage that talks about these workers that the that the landowner went out to recruit or to hire each morning or on this particular given morning. 
So in Matthew 20, let me just tell you, this is, you, don't, you wouldn't normally associate this passage with faith and prayer. But I'm going to tell you a connection that I made, that I pray it was a blessing to me. I pray it's a blessing to you because it describes faith in terms that we're not accustomed to recognizing. It says that early in the morning, a landowner went out to hire laborers and he talked to these guys in verse two of Matthew 20 and they agreed for a denarius a day. That was the equivalent of a day's wages. In biblical times, most people were paid every day. They weren't paid at the end of the week or the middle of the month or even the end of the month, but they were paid every day. So these workers at 6 a.m. agreed to a wage that was fair to them. The Bible says they agreed with the landowner for a wage. And the landowner came back to the employment station or where these men were standing around waiting to be selected to work somewhere, sort of the unemployment office of their day. And he came back at 9 a.m. And he hired some more guys. He said, you're still here? You want to work? Fine, come on, I got work for you. He came back again at noon, according to verse 4 of this passage and verse uh, 5. And he came back again at 3 o'clock, hiring men that were looking for work. Here's the exciting part. He came back again, the Bible says, at the 11th hour, which was 5 o'clock p.m., our time, for instance, just one hour to work. The, a typical work day was 12 hours, 6 a.m., which was considered the first hour of the day, and 6 p.m. was considered the 12th hour of the day. The landowner came back at the 11th hour, that's 5 p.m. our time, and said, you've been standing here all day. And he said, why are you here? He said, because no one has hired us. He said, well, go into the vineyard and work as well. So they worked for one hour. At the end of the day, at six o'clock, I guess, when the whistle blew and it was time for the men to get paid, he started with the men that came at five o'clock p.m. And he paid them a full denarius, that is, a full day's wages, even though they only worked for one hour. By the time he got down to the men that started at 6 a.m., he gave all of them a full day's wages also. Now, there's so many morals to this, this particular passage. There's so many lessons that we can extract from this, and I won't go into all of those. Let me just talk about the one, because I've, I've preached this passage before, and you can go back online or in our notes and, and look at what we said then. Or if you don't find it, I'll be glad to send you notes from Matthew 20. But let me just say this, the part that I think relates to prayer. The men that came to work for him in the third, the sixth, the ninth, and especially the 11th hour, the Bible doesn't say that they negotiated anything with the landowner. These men apparently 
were asked, would you like to come and work, and said yes, and they went to work, they weren't worried about what the pay would be because I believe in my heart, they trusted the landowner so that it did not matter what they negotiated or what the pay was. They believed that he would be fair, that he would be just, that he would be worthy and pure and honest. And therefore they didn't bother negotiating a rate or a wage because they had trust. There it is. There it is. There is faith at its core. That's how prayer works. That's how prayer gets done. We trust the object of our prayers. We trust the source. We trust God that he's going to do what is right as it relates to us. He's going to do what is best on our behalf, that he's going to give us our needs and meet our needs according to his riches in glory. That is faith. I've never heard anyone share it like that. But I'm sharing it like that because it just hit me that way the other day when I was reading Matthew 20. And I thought, these guys that came in, especially at noon and three and five, they had trust, enough trust where it wasn't even necessary to go to the bargaining table and hash out a collective bargaining agreement to hash out a wage, a salary. I trust this man. I trust his integrity. I trust his fairness. That's how we should feel about God. Lord, I don't know if you're going to grant me this petition or not. Lord, I don't know if you're going to answer this prayer based on what I would like as an outcome or not. Lord, I don't know if you're going to give me this new car, this promotion, this spouse, this house, this pay increase, this healing. I don't know if you're going to give me this or not because I don't know your mind. I don't know your heart, but i tell you what I do know. I know what you can do, and I trust you. I trust your character. I trust your omniscience. I trust your omniscient, um, uh, omnipotence. I trust your love for me. I trust your care about my well-being. I know that when I ask you for a fish, you're not going to give me a scorpion. I know that when I ask you for a piece of bread, you're not going to give me a coal. I know when you, when, when you say you're going to do something, you're not like men who change their mind, who forget, who, who actually ignore their agreements. But you are God, and your word is your bond. Your word is your power. Well, that's my little two cents on fit prayer and how faith works in prayer. And I pray, I pray that helps inform and instruct your prayer life so that you will know when you pray to God, 
that you can trust him to do what's best on your behalf. Faith should be in God, not faith in faith. Not faith in words. Faith in God. All right. So much for that. I'll cut to the chase and be brief as we talk about this church at this this amazing church at um, Sardis, a church that is really a, 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 you could do a whole series on this church at Sardis. But let's just jump right in. Quick review on last Sunday's message. Three three quick points. Number one. Don't be like Jezebel. We, we talked about Jezebel quite a bit last week. And, and her biggest sin and her biggest problem. And let me just say this that I didn't say last week. You know, Jezebel was a prophetess. Or at least she called herself one. Don't think because a person has a gift or a talent or a quote-unquote uh, calling that that makes them always righteous and always right don't believe that because a person says they're a, an apostle or a bishop or an elder or a pastor or an evangelist or a deacon that that means that you have to buy into them lock stock and barrel a person's gift is not what gives them integrity a person's Talent or calling is not what makes them right in God's sight. They may have a title. They may have initials in front of their name or behind their name. They may have all these uh, certain accomplishments and citations and certifications. But at the end of the day, it's what God does in them and through them that should give them standing in our sight not what their title is not what their rank is not what their position is in the church but who they are amen amen the lord is the lord comes down hard on people that pull other people away from him look what Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 18 and all these woes that he brought about uh, on these people that would lead people away from the Lord, lead saints into sins. He says in Matthew 18, 6, he says, but if you cause one of these little ones who trusted me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone. This was a very heavy rock, super heavy rock. It was used to grind grind out grain when they would make bread in those days it would be better to have a large millstone verse 6 of math uh, i'm sorry matthew 18 says tied around your neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea he says in verse 7 what sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin what sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin temptations are inevitable the New Living Translation says, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? Don't, don't be the person 
to drag people out into the world. Don't be that person that discourages people from seeking the Lord, from serving the Lord, from submitting to the Lord. Don't be a person that becomes a distraction that draws people away from Jesus Christ. That's one thing we learned last week, and that was Jezebel's biggest indictment. Her ability to lead the saints of God in those churches, especially the church at Thyatira, into idolatry and into immorality. The second thing we learned last week is to hold on until the Lord comes. He says in verse 19 of chapter 2 last week that, that, that hold fast till I come. He says, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and at the last to be more than the first. And he says, just hold on. Just whatever you have that's working, keep doing that and building and then adding to those virtues, adding to those attributes and getting better and letting go of those things that are sins and weights that doth so easily beset us. But adding to those virtues, the Bible says in Peter. And also the last point I wanted to make or I made last week was being thankful for what God has done for us. Being thankful for where God has brought us and what he's delivered us from and what he's promoted us to. Amen? Being thankful. Looking back and saying how I got over. Look what God has brought me from. Look how God, not looking back the way Lot's wife did because she was, in my heart, in my understanding, coveting and craving the life that she enjoyed in Sodom and Gomorrah and bemoaning the fact that her city was being burned to, to ashes and she was leaving her home, I believe, not looking back the way Lot's wife did, but looking back at where God has delivered us from, what he has done for us, how he has elevated us. The miracles that he's done in our life, our healings, our deliverances, our, our promotions, our marriages, our purchases, our employment, our health, our sustenance. God has done this for us. It's great to look back and rejoice and be appreciative and be grateful and be thankful. Amen. That's a source of encouragement for the future. If you're in a struggle right now, if you're in a battle right now, if you're in a tough place right now, if you're enduring some challenge right now, think about what God has already done for you and take refuge in that. If you're my age, think about what he's done for you in the 60s, what he's done for you in the 70s, what he's done for you in the 80s. If you're younger, think about what he's done for you in the 90s. If you're a millennial, think about what he's done for you in the 2000s. <laughs> you, if think about what he's done for you last week, last month, last year. The fact that you're listening to me is a testament to what God has done for you, that he's kept you, that he's saved you, that he's preserved you, that he's sustaining you, that he's good to you. I got to settle down because I'm getting too excited and I haven't said one word about Sardis. Let me read to you about the church at Sardis. This is our fourth. These churches are... I, I pray that they're ministering to you. I pray we're over the halfway point at this point. And, uh, the Sardis is, um, 
a church that is really, really kind of amazing uh, because we only have two churches to go. Uh, and yeah, I think it is too. I know we have Philadelphia coming up and we're going to wrap it up in the end of chapter three with Laodicea. But these, these churches are, are meaningful and I pray that they're ministering to you. Let me just read to you chapter three of the book of Revelation, singular revelation, not plural revelation chapter three, verse one. The King James Version says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and are dead. I mean, just that's the commendation. So, you know, we're in we're into this four pattern protocol, so to speak. Commendation. The Lord appears to start each letter off with a commendation. There are some exceptions. And then there is a condemnation or something that he, he criticizes or, or challenges that they need to, to do better at. And then he brings the correction and then he brings the consolation or the encouragement, consoling them to continue on uh, in what they need to do, primarily by saying, if you have an ear, let you hear or you must hear what the Lord is saying in a judge or adjust your living accordingly. So he says here, and unto the angel of the church at Sardis, we've learned already that the angel of the churches probably refers to the pastor or the overseer of the churches. That's angel as in messenger, not angel as in Michael or Gabriel, the seraphim or cherubim, cherubim. That's not the reference to this particular definition for angel. He goes on to refer to an expression that we've heard before, the seven spirits of God. We know that there's only one spirit uh, according to the word of God. Uh, matter of fact, Ephesians 4 tells us that just in case uh, you had any allusions to the fact that there are, are, are really a seven spirit. He's not, in my opinion, saying that there are seven spirits. He's talking about the sevenfold manifestation or the description uh, of the, uh, the the spirit of God because Ephesians tells us this that, that really makes it makes it clear makes it clear to us regarding um, the the oneness of God's uh, the Godhead Ephesians four four King James version says there is one body and one spirit even as ye are called into one hope of your calling one Lord one faith one baptism, and actually verse 6 even says, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So, so he's referring there to one spirit that has seven manifestations. And I think you can find those seven manifestations of the Spirit of God listed in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And I referred to that a few weeks ago. I won't read it now, but You'll see that. So going on out to Revelation chapter three, verse two, it says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. That's the condemnation. He's condemning the church at Sardis because they are acting like they're alive. That is, you know, having a form of godliness, 
but denying the power thereof. They are a dead church. They're not just on life support. These, these are, are essentially dead people walking. This, this is like they have no, no, virtually no spiritual pulse at all. He says, you know, you need to watch. And I, I, I wrote down the scriptures in my notes, what Jesus said in Matthew 26, watch and pray, watch and, and pray. Actually, if you look at it in the original Greek, it says, keep watching and keep praying that you may not enter into temptation for the spirit is willing, but what? But the flesh is weak and it's weak because there was a lack of prayer. There was a lack of eagerness to receive the word as was evident with the Berean church in Acts 17, 11. There was that lack of element that brings about strength. So he says, you need to strengthen that. By the way, all revival, if you look throughout scripture, going back to Genesis, all revival started with a call to repentance, a call to address the state that you are currently in that introspection, that, that evaluation has to be done. That searching that David talks about in the last two verses of Psalms 139, that inner searching, search me, O God, expose me, reveal me to me, lay me open bare Lord, so that I can start the process of recovery. And Luke 15, the prodigal son, the Bible says, and when he came to his senses, it started there with a revelation of my current state, how bad things are, how bad I am. Lord, it's me, it's me, it's me standing in the need of prayer. I'm the problem. Not, you know, this guy, not that guy, not the other person. I'm the problem. I need help. And so the Lord was encouraging and, and really admonishing John to advocate to this church here at Sardis that you guys are in trouble. You guys are dying or if not dead or dying, either place wasn't good and that you needed to start. And he, and he gives, he sort of gives a recovery process, a correction. He says in verse three of revelation three, Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. I created a little alliteration there with three R's. I said, remember, repent and resolve. Hold fast means to resolve. Stake a claim. Dig in. I resolve that I'm going to follow the Lord. Remember, remember where you've fallen. Remember where God brought you from and where you were. Don't, don't go back there as a dog returns to its vomit, Scripture says. Remember that and go back to the old landmark. Remember, repent, that is turn from sin and turn to God and then resolve that you're going to stay in the center of God's will going forward. That's what verse 3 says. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. And we know that the Lord can come at any moment 
or we can leave at any moment. Tomorrow is not promised. Life is not guaranteed going forward. Every day is a gift of God. And so, so we should live with a sense of gratitude and with a sense of expectancy that the Lord could return any day or I could be home with the Lord any day. But in the meantime, I will redeem the times. In the meantime, I will remember to live for the Lord with everything I have. He says in verse four, Revelation three, I'm almost done. Hang with me. Verse four, Revelation three, thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. When I read that, the first thing I thought about is, you know, but I still have a few names. There's still a few people that haven't defiled themselves. I thought about 1 Kings 19 where Elijah with a J was in the cave on the run hiding from the assassins that had been sent out by Queen Jezebel. And you remember the story because I've talked about it multiple times. God said, Elijah, what are you doing here? In other words, why are you running from her? You just destroyed, what was it, 700 of her prophets of Baal, 400 of Baal, and I think 300 of Asherah. I mean, he had given Elijah complete victory that caused Jezebel to put the hit out on him to begin with. And Elijah started moaning and groaning to the Lord and complaining and said, yeah, you know, I've done all this. I've, 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 I've been faithful to you. And all, every, all I get in return is that all these, these prophets have been killed. God, she had, Jezebel had killed some of the prophets of God and she was seeking my life. She's seeking to kill me too. So I'm the only one left and I'm on the run. I'm hiding. I'm a fugitive, not of justice, but a fugitive of injustice. And the Lord had to give uh, Elijah sort of a reality check and say, dude, number one, put your big boy pants on and you need to realize that I got 7,000 whose knees have not bowed to bow and who have not kissed him. And that's over. That's found over in First, First uh, Kings chapter nineteen, verse eighteen. So hey, I've said that to say to you guys, don't think that you're the lone ranger. You're not a lone wolf, and you're the only one out there holding up the bloodstained banner. You're the only one living right, or you're the only one that got it right, and you have a monopoly on truth, a monopoly on right righteousness, a monopoly on holiness. It may seem that the whole world is going to Hades in a handbasket, but there are people that are holding up the name of Jesus Christ. There are people out there that are representing. And uh, we should realize that God will never leave himself without a witness. And we are his witnesses today. Amen. Mm -hmm. So finally, to, to conclude this message, 
the consolation starts in verse 5 of Revelation chapter 3. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. I told you, Revelation is just, if you had to narrow it down to two words, it, it's a book about repentance and a book about rejoicing. And, and the only way that you can rejoice is to repent. Because if you're not in one of those two camps, you're into the third camp that starts with the RNS retribution, God's wrath. You don't want to be in that camp. And the fact that you're listening to me this morning, very good chance that you're already a believer and your names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. So here's what it says. He that overcometh, verse 5 of Revelation 3 in conclusion, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Isn't that good news? What a good note to end on. Having our names written. Remember over in Luke 10, I preached this message too. And I always have loved it. Uh, Luke 10 verse 20, I think it is, when the 70 have been sent out to minister. The 70 missionaries over each other and fist pumping and chest thumping. And and the Lord sort of had to chill them, chill them out a little bit and said, don't rejoice because spirits, the spirits, the demonic world are subject to you. Let me quote it verbatim. It says in St. Luke 20, 10, 10, 20, notwithstanding, the King James Version says, notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you but rather rejoice, wait for it, wait for it. Rejoice, saints. Rejoice those that are listening to me online this morning. Rejoice, rejoice you believers. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. I love that. Actually that word written, the the uh, it's it's record the 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 New American Standard renders that word written as as recorded in heaven. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. The New Living Translation renders that word in the Greek as being registered. Rejoice that your names are registered in heaven. It's isn't that great? Don't you, don't you want your name to be registered in heaven in the book of life? The book of life is mentioned, I think it's eight times total in the New Testament. Two times it's mentioned as re being referred to as the Lamb's book of life. But they're the same. Lamb's book of life, the book of life are synonymous. And what they represent, this book of life, singular book of life, represents those names that have been recorded in the book by God as believers that are not just recorded, but the word in its etymology suggests 
or not just suggest, but implies we're registered. When you register for something, that's not just simply having your name on a list. Register is official. It makes it legal. It's sort of a binding agreement that you're registered. You are officially a part of this group or this list or this event, sort of an RSVP. You are registered. God has registered our names. He's recorded our names in his book, not to be blotted out. Our, our names can't be blotted out. If our name is on that list, we're in. There is no, well, you're on the list now, but you can be uninvited later if you act up. That's not what he's referring to. This is not a threat here in Revelation 3, 5. This is a reiteration of a promise. A promise, as a matter of fact, that the Lord made over in Ephesians chapter 1. It says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Isn't that good? Paul didn't stop there. He said over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, he said, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We are sealed. God has locked us in. Revelation 13, 8, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks, says all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast all those whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. That's how the NIV renders it. In other words, everybody that's worshiping the beast are the people that he's identifying that have not had their names recorded in the lamb's book of life. The book that registers, that records, that writes those people that have been earmarked for heaven, that have been sealed, Ephesians says, for heaven, that have been preserved, Jesus said in John 17. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17, verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. None of them is lost except the son of perdition. That scripture might be fulfilled. In other words, the Lord says, everyone that you brought to me, everyone that was drawn to me, everyone that was saved by me, I have written their names in the book of life and they will be sealed and preserved until the day of redemption. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. I tell you, the book of Revelation is a book of rejoicing. You should be rejoicing over God's promises. You should be rejoicing over God's commitment to us that our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, that he has prepared for us a place. He has prepared for us a reward. He has prepared for us a day in which we will see our Lord's face in peace. I'm just personally, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm not ex excited enough where I'm willing to walk out here in front of a train so that that can happen today. But 
when my hour, when my day comes, I pray that I will rejoice and will look forward to it the way Paul said with, 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 with some divide as to, I don't know whether to stay and be with you or whether it's, it's more blessed that I go and be with the Lord. Either way is a great thing. When I'm with you, I'm ministering, I'm helping you, Paul was saying, and I'm, I'm doing the bidding of my master. But when I'm with him, I'm in the comfort of his presence. I'm in heaven with him. What a blessing. I'm done. I'm thankful. I, I will say I'm stopping. I'm not done. I would love to talk more about this church at Sardis and, and the, the problems that it had and, and, and what the Lord provided as a, a remedy for getting them back into the place that they needed to go. But we may revisit these churches as we work our way through Revelation. Let me just share with you the Monday morning moment. This might be a first, maybe it's not a first, but it's actually the same Monday morning moment I used last week because I was just so concerned that we grab the message of these churches. So I said for the Monday morning moment again, what am I hearing in these messages? but I'm not yet doing. And I, I said as a sidebar, wh which church most represents where you are right now spiritually? Who, who, who do you personally identify with? Do you identify with the church at Ephesus that had sort of lost their first love? Do you identify with the church at Smyrna? which was the suffering church, the martyr church that God had nothing critical or negative to say about. Do you identify with the church at Pergamos, the church that was compromised and influenced uh, by the, the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans? Do you, do you relate more perhaps to the church at Thyatira, which was a church that was plagued by that so-called prophetess uh, Jezebel who was infiltrating the church and leading people away from Christ. Perhaps you relate more to this church here, uh, the church at um, Sardis, which was a church that was also compromised and, and basically dead. Uh, e essentially, these guys were on life support or, or beyond this church at Sardis. So where, where do you, where do you find yourself at? Hopefully you're in the church or you feel like you more represent the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia, which we'll talk about next week. So what am I hearing and not yet, not yet doing? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word and thank you for this message. We ask you, Lord, to let it, let it change our hearts, let it change our minds, let it change our thinking on how we can better please you and serve you. May our attitudes toward you become more like the church at Smyrna in Philadelphia so that we'll be a loving church, a church that will unfortunately, like most people endure 
some persecution, some suffering, but that we will prevail because you have overcome the world and you are in us. We will overcome the persecution and the pushback that's in the world. Lord, we just ask you for strength to be accountable, to be strong, to be a soldier, to be a church, a person that listens to you and abides accordingly. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. May you be glorified in our lives throughout the balance of this week. And may we be edified by this service today and what we have heard, are hearing, and will hear for the remaining minutes of our service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.